This morning we finished the life of Solomon, coming to the 11th chapter of 1 Kings, the last of the chapters that deals with Solomon's rise and reign. So we'll read from 1 Kings 11, it's on page 542 in the Pew Bibles. I encourage you to follow along. Before we read that together, let's pray. Your word gives life. Your word gives warning. We pray, Father, that we might take better heed of your warnings than the great king we read of today. Correct us, rebuke us, teach us, train us in righteousness for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line of Edom. Earlier, when David was fighting with Edom, Joab, the commander of the army, who had gone up to bury the dead, had struck down all the men of Edom. Joab and all the Israelites stayed there for six months until they had destroyed all the men of Edom. But Hadad, still only a boy, fled to Egypt with some Edomite officials who had served his father. They set out from Midian and went to Paran. Then, taking men from Paran with them, they went to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave Hadad a house and land and provided him with food. Pharaoh was so pleased with Hadad that he gave him a sister of his own wife, Queen Tapanes, in marriage. The sister of Tapanes bore him a son named Ganubeth, who Tapanes brought up in the royal palace. There Ganubeth lived with Pharaoh's own children. While he was in Egypt, Hadad heard that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was also dead. Then Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me go, that I may return to my own country. What have you lacked here? Do you want to go back to your own country? Pharaoh asked. Nothing, Hadad replied, but do let me go. 
And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rezon, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, had a deezer, king of Zobah. He gathered men around him and became the leader of a band of rebels when David destroyed the forces of Zobah. The rebels went to Damascus where they settled and took control. Rezon was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezon ruled in Aram and was hostile toward Israel. Also, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zeradah. And his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and had filled in the gap of the wall of the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing. And when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem. And Ahijah the prophet of Shiloh met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Moloch, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who observed my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his sons that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak, the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. As for the other, reigns of, as for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed are not written in the book of the annals of King Solomon. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel forty years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. You know, if you're watching a, a television show or a movie, and everything seems to be going just fine, and then suddenly you, you hear something like this, dun-dun-dun-dun, you know that there's some kind of a bad plot twist about to happen, that something, something unfavorable or undesirable is about to happen in the plot of the story. And when you come to the very first verse of chapter 11, and you hear the, the word, however, King Solomon, however, this is the, this is the authorial um, correspondence or the corresponding literary, literary way of saying, dun-dun-dun-dun, 
This is bad news. There is bad, very bad, horrible news about to come in the story about Solomon. See, for for ten chapters, we have seen the, the rise and the reign and the glory of Solomon cataloged for us. We read of how he was David's favored son, David's hand-chosen successor, and how he outmaneuvered Adonijah and avoided the traps which his brother had sent for him, how he had humbly asked the Lord for wisdom, and then he had ruled with justice and given wise rulings, how he had, how he had managed to do all these magnificent architectural accomplishments, even building the temple which God stamped with approval by setting his own glory in it, and how he had sent foreign dignitaries away breathless. Solomon is a great king, truly great king. Ten chapters of greatness, and then However, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Solomon had been accumulating these wives all across the course of his reign and rule. Most of them diplomatic marriages of one kind or another meant to solidify political relationships of one kind. And yet the scripture very plainly says that Solomon loved these foreign women and In fact, Solomon had accumulated all three things that kings were forbidden to accumulate. If you go back to Deuteronomy 17, we read this. The Lord says, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Three things you don't accumulate a lot of, horses, wives, and gold. If you go back just one paragraph into the last paragraph, chapter 10, we read this, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. You weren't supposed to have horses, and you definitely weren't supposed to go back to Egypt to get them, and Solomon goes back to Egypt to get a whole boatload of horses. And then we go back just a little further to chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas in gold in each shield. The important part is where Solomon puts this gold. He doesn't put it in the temple. He doesn't put it anywhere except in his palace. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. He gets horses He gets wives and he gets gold, all three of which were expressly forbidden for the kings to collect and accumulate in large quantities in the book of Deuteronomy. But the problem isn't these three disobediences. These three disobediences are symptoms of a much more profound problem. And verse 4 gives us the much more profound problem. It says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. The primary issue is not horses, it's not gold, it's not even wives. The primary issue is Solomon's heart. Solomon did not love God to the exclusion of all other loves and lusts. Solomon was an idolater. He broke both the first and the second commandments. We should soberly remember what those commandments are. The Lord had carved out the 
covenant in the rock in the presence of Moses. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, Solomon didn't only, if we are allowed to say only, Solomon didn't only worship other gods, but Solomon built altars to other gods to facilitate the worship and idolatry of his people to these other gods. And Solomon didn't just build altars to the, to the less terrible other gods. Solomon builds altars to the detestable gods of the Moabites and the Ammonites. These are altars for gods that required human child sacrifice. How far has this great king fallen from the dedication of the temple of the one true God now to build altars for these disgusting demon gods that require human child sacrifice? Solomon's heart has fallen away. In fact, the word heart appears five times in just verses 2, 3, and 4. The author and the Lord are clearly primarily concerned with where Solomon's heart is. The heart for the ancient author isn't, isn't a, a mushy-gushy place where we conceive love songs for women or love songs for our boyfriends or love songs for Jesus. The heart is the very center of a person's will. It is the location of their desire. It is the place from which even their thoughts flow. Jesus will later say, out of the heart flow evil thoughts. The, the heart is the very core of a person. And when Solomon comes to the very end of, the, end of his life, his heart, the very core of his person, is so corrupt that he turns away from the God who had made him everything that he was. The issue isn't just that Solomon stopped feeling a love for God. It's that Solomon stopped desiring God. He stopped treasuring God and His Word above all other things. Can you take a moment and grieve this with me? It happened 3,000 years ago. Almost exactly 3,000 years ago. But it's still terribly sad. This is a great king. This is God's king. This is the one who expanded Israel's borders to the extent that God had promised to Abraham. This is the God who built a temple for the Lord, and yet when he comes to the end of his life, he's an idol-making, idol-worshiping idolater. It's a tragedy. He has fallen. His kingdom will soon fall. And this is a fall from which God's people will not recover until Jesus ascends into heaven to sit as the greatest king on God's greatest throne. It was about Solomon's heart. He didn't love the Lord with his heart. You know, our mission here at First Church is to be disciples of Jesus. 
And Jesus loved the Lord his God with all of his heart. And to be a disciple means that we too love the Lord our God with all of our heart, following Jesus in discipleship, molding our lives after his own life. And that includes, again, loving God with our hearts. And then when we have begun to follow Jesus and our hearts have begun to be remade, we call others to come with us to see them made and to be disciples of Jesus and to see them love God with their hearts as well. I was thinking about this this past week. I was thinking about it in the context of our upcoming youth discipleship trip. I know some of you think it's a terrible idea to take the kids to a nice place and study the Scriptures with them for four or five hours a day. I hear your grumblings more than you probably think I do. And some of you would say the most important thing is for these kids to learn how to work. Right? But is that the most important thing? Is it most important? Is it chiefly important that children, that young people learn how to work? I hope you wouldn't say that. I hope you wouldn't say the most important thing is to learn how to work. You know, work is a very easy idol to fall into. And when I look at the, the young people, and I love you, but when I look at the young people that I have had the, the privilege of serving across the last five years, I see in many of them that idolatry of work is coming or it has already come. They will miss youth events for work, important discipleship events for work. They'll, they'll miss worship to study. What they need most isn't work. They don't need to learn how to scrape paint off a house in 95 degree heat with 100% humidity, though it does build character. The thing they need most is to love God. To love Him with all of their hearts. And how will they do that? They will do it by knowing His Word. By knowing God. You know how you love God more? You learn more about Him because the more you know about God, the more you love Him because you see just how magnificent and grace and great and gracious He is. You know, we're not a career center or a union hall. We're a church. We don't make painters or teachers or anything else. We make disciples. And I'm concerned we're not doing all that good of a job at it sometimes. We have kids who don't know who Esther is, who don't know who the three friends of Daniel who were hurled into the furnace were, except that they know that they're Rackshack and Benny because they watched Veggie Tales. You know how embarrassing it is for a church to be outdone by veggie tales. They don't know basic Bible stories. They don't know parables. If they had to share the gospel, many of them couldn't do it. They need to know God. We need to love God with our whole hearts. And so we're going to teach them to love God with their whole hearts. Whether you like it or not, we're going to keep teaching them to love God with their whole hearts because that is what they need most. And by God's grace, that is what we will do. But, you see here that Solomon doesn't forsake God in his youth. He forsakes God in his old age. In his youth, he was full of vim and vigor. In his old age, he loses his zeal. In his old age, he bows to idols. In his old age, he forsakes his first love. J. 
Jesus condemns the Ephesian church in the letter in Revelation 2 for exactly this. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Maybe those of you who are well along life's journey, entering into your twilight years, I affectionately call you seasoned saints. You need to hear this. Don't lose your first love. Don't lose your zeal. Don't accommodate to the world's values. Don't become apathetic. And certainly don't become curmudgeonly traditionalists. But continue to joyfully, gladly love God with everything that you have. Because the next thing we read very plainly is that God forsakes Solomon. There is no mention of grace to Solomon. Not even a hint. The only person who gets grace in this passage is David. Solomon keeps the kingdom in his hand, though barely for the days of his life, only for David's sake. Solomon keeps one tribe in his line, only for David's sake. Solomon gets no extra credit for past accomplishments. At the end of his life, Solomon forsakes the Lord and the Lord forsakes Solomon. Does that seem harsh? It isn't. Solomon knew the deal. The Lord says very plainly in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And to help the kings do exactly that, the Lord commanded the kings that the first thing they were supposed to do when they became king was to take a scroll and write out on the scroll in their own hand the entirety of the law of Moses, that they might have a personal copy, they might be able to keep that copy and read that copy and know exactly what God requires of them. It's a simple act with profound implications. This is what the Scripture says. And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. It's a, it's a simple deal. Stay faithful to the Lord, and you and your children will be king. Don't, and they won't. Solomon broke the law. He broke love with the Lord. Now the Lord will break his kingdom. That's the first 13 verses. The rest of the passage deals with the consequences of Solomon's lack of love for the Lord. And the first thing we see is that the foundations in the cracks of Solomon's great kingdom begin to show through. And they show through first in the Lord raising up these enemies. You have Hadad and you have Rezin. And these are men who do not come of their own accord to oppose Solomon. But the Lord raises them up. 
They are under the Lord's control, under the Lord's influence. They are God's rods of discipline promised in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, that God would discipline David's sons when they sinned. And even the enemies of God's people are under His sovereign control. That should frighten us. And then it should comfort us more than it frightens us. But then we see that the chief of the enemies of Solomon is a man named Jeroboam who becomes a very important character in the book of Kings. Let's read how Jeroboam rises to power in verses 29 to 33. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem and Ahijah the prophet of Shiloh met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David in the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Moloch, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. This prophet appears seemingly out of nowhere. All we know about him is where he's from. He's from Shiloh. And then he just disappears because the messenger isn't important. The message is important. And the message is plain. God is going to rip his kingdom into two parts. He's going to give most of the kingdom to Jeroboam, and he's going to give just one tribe to Solomon and Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Then the Lord incredibly makes a covenant with Jeroboam. We read that covenant verses 37 and 38. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. It's a new covenant with a new promise. Jeroboam. If you keep my commands, I will build you an enduring dynasty. But it's a purely conditional covenant. David's promise was sure. No matter how badly David's sons messed up, and they would mess up pretty badly, and they would be disciplined for it, but no matter how badly they messed up, God would keep his promise to keep a son of David on the throne forever. But Jeroboam's promise was only as good as Jeroboam's obedience. And while David's line and David's lineage would endure through many bad kings, yet Jeroboam and his dynasty would fail and be over almost as soon as it starts. But I want us to look then at the end of Solomon's life, the end of these passages. We're going to end with Solomon's death, and then we'll hop back to verse 39 as we conclude. Look with me at verses 41 to 43. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed... Are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel forty years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. 
and Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. What are the last three things we see Solomon doing? Worshiping idols, building altars to idols, and trying to kill the Lord's anointed. It's very interesting to look at Saul and Solomon. They have an eerily lot of things in common. They both started well, and they both ended very poorly. They both ended their lives trying to kill someone who was anointed by God to be king over his people. They both ended in what seems to be apostasy. I had a long-running debate with a, a woman in my last congregation. If ever there was a godly woman, it was Judy. Uh, she was always around at the church. She was godly and she was grace, gracious. She is full of class. She wasn't employed by the church, but you would have never known it because she was there all the time. She was at every event. She did all the landscaping all around the church facility. And she was humble. She always taught a Sunday school class. People loved Judy's Sunday school class. And when I came, I was very happy to let her keep teaching. And she no, I want you to teach. And she was happy to have me. She wasn't like, here, do it so I can be done. She handed me the class with all of her students. And then she came, religiously, pardon the pun, to the class every Sunday. And even though she had all kinds of health issues, she was always there, even though it would have kept a lesser saint away, and reasonably so. So one of the classes I taught in that Sunday school class was on the book of 1 Kings. And we come to the end of Solomon's life, and I said something very, very simple, but in some ways shocking. I said, Solomon is the perfectly bad king. He breaks all the rules, and then he dies worshiping idols. So then, of course, the question comes, as it always does, well, is Solomon in heaven? It's a good question. I'm not sure it's the main point of the text, but it's a good question. And my answer was, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so because people who die, the last thing they worship being idols, don't have very much good things spoken about them in the scriptures. Her take, I think a reasonable one, I don't think the right one, was that the Spirit had filled him with wisdom to write scripture. I mean, how, how do you imagine someone writing scripture not being in, in glory? And my response was, well, the Lord can speak through a donkey. I don't think the donkey's in glory either. But it's startling, isn't it? To see someone who reigned so greatly, used by God so wonderfully, yet he dies, a murderous idolater. Solomon is a mystery to me. Isn't he mysterious? What a great king, an author of Psalms and Proverbs, a wise ruler but an idolater to the end. I suppose the question, is Solomon in heaven, isn't the most important for us, though it is the most important for him. The more important thing, I think, for us is to take a warning. Don't take grace for granted. You might have done well so far. Good. But you have to keep going. Don't let up. Don't take your foot off the gas. Don't stop loving the Lord. But press on. And pray. Read the scriptures. Study the scriptures. And pray. And worship. 
and pray and run from idols and plead with God that last petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. And then choose who you marry very well and only marry one person, preferably. And then pray. And surround yourself not with unregenerate people who will lead you into idolatry, but surround yourself with wise people who love the Lord. And do everything you can to be faithful and obedient to the very last breath and then pray that God keeps you faithful. Remember Daniel. Daniel who was often exiled. Daniel whose life was constantly being threatened. Daniel who lived in a, a pagan foreign land. And Daniel who prayed. And God would keep him faithful. We might very well dare to be Daniels. But we should never stoop to being Solomon. Solomon ends poorly. Don't end poorly. But the story doesn't really end poorly. Because you go back to verse 39, and though there seems to be no hope for Solomon, there is hope for God's people. Verse 39 says, I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon failed, but God's grace never failed. Solomon wasn't going to be the king of kings. He wasn't going to be, be the king who reigned over God's people forever. And God would bear with king after king after king, most of them bad, some of them good, even the good ones, though, having significant failings of one kind or another. But David's true son, David's greater son, God's son, who is the king of kings, was still coming. Solomon wasn't that king. We won't find that king until we come to Bethlehem's manger. We're not there yet. There's much more searching to be done. And even though Solomon is dead and gone, yet the quest for God's king continues. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are thankful not to live in the days of Solomon or Rehoboam or even the good kings like Josiah and Hezekiah. But we are thankful to live in the days under the reign of King Jesus, who never fails, is full of perfect wisdom, who loved you all the way to the end and then came up from the grave and is at your very right hand, who sits not on a magnificent throne of gold and ivory, but sits on the throne of heaven, who is surrounded not by men of the court, but who is surrounded by angels who receives the praise not of just one kingdom, but who receives the praise of your kingdom, of saints from every nation. In some ways, we would love to see Solomon's splendor. But we look ahead far more eagerly to seeing the splendor of the new creation. When we live and reign with Christ, the true King. God, keep us free from the folly of Solomon, the wisest fool who ever lived, who did not fear you. God, keep us free from that folly. Drive us all the way to the end in faithfulness, in true faith. Let us not rest on what we have done, but seek to continue serving. We might hear at the very end, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Why don't we stand to sing our song of response, Thy Word. Verse, uh, we'll sing all the verses. It's number 178. Again, we'll stand to sing. <laughs>